Welcome. My name is Dr. Marhaba. I'm one of the ED registrars of the Alfred. Welcome, Professor Peter Cameron and uh, Dr. J.K. to our podcast on the latest evidence-based publications that may affect our practice. Paper one. And our first paper manuscript that we'll be talking about today is titled A Randomized Study of Intravenous Hydromorphone versus Intravenous Acetaminophen for Older Adult Patients with Acute Severe Pain. This was published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in November 2022. And the background is that elderly patients are thought to be at risk of undertreatment for pain due to the fear of medication-induced adverse effects and medication interactions. So they're more likely to experience delays to analgesia. Intravenous opioids are the mainstay of treatment that we use for severe acute pain in the emergency department. And uh, intravenous paracetamol or acetaminophen um, also decrease pain without a meaningful rise in adverse effects. So this is a quote from the end of the introduction of the uh, manuscript. It may be that in a subset of patients, intravenous acetaminophen is sufficiently effective and that intravenous opioids are not warranted. And this is the, the phrase that I think I focus on for, uh, for this uh, brief critical appraisal. This was a double-blinded, parallel group, randomized controlled trial among two emergency departments in the Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, New York. The patients were aged 65 or more with severe acute pain, onset within the last seven days, deemed by the attending physician to require intravenous opioid analgesia. The intervention was 100 mils of normal saline solution administered as an intravenous drip over 10 minutes, followed by half a milligram of intravenous hydromorphone in solution with two mils of normal saline administered as a slow intravenous push. The comparator was uh, one gram of, par of intravenous paracetamol or acetaminophen in a solution with 100 mils of normal saline solution administered as an intravenous drip over 10 minutes, and then two mils of normal saline solution administered as a slow intravenous push afterwards. Their primary outcome was difference in pain on a zero to 10 scale measured at baseline and then at 60 minutes. And they had two secondary outcomes. The first was a requirement for further medication and pain relief. And the second was the presence of side effects. Their results were that by 60 minutes, the patients were receiving, uh, the patients receiving acetaminophen approved by 3.6 on the zero to 10 pain scale that they used, whereas the patients receiving hydromorphone improved by 4.6 on that, on that same zero to 10 pain scale that they used with a 95% confidence interval being 0.1 to 2.0 improvement. Their conclusion is that although the intravenous administration of half a milligram of hydromorphone was statistically superior to that of one gram of intravenous acetaminophen, the dif this difference was not clinically important. I enjoyed reading this study. It's not a big um, ECMO study. It it's something that we do uh, every day in the emergency department. But then I thought to myself, is this useful to me? And is, going, is this going to change what I do? Professor Peter or Dr. J.K., do either of you use intravenous paracetamol regularly with your patients? Well, it's interesting. <clears throat> IV paracetamol got a bad name at the Alfred because it was a lot more expensive than oral paracetamol. Actually, as long as they can absorb the oral paracetamol, there's not much difference in effect after you know half an hour, an hour or so. 
And, you know, the evidence from the anesthesia literature is, is quite good on that. But on the other hand, there is something about the intravenous route, as in the immediacy, the fact, you know, if they're vomiting or whatever, then that makes a difference. And then some patients with, you know, gastrointestinal problems and so forth obviously don't absorb as well. So there's, there's sort of some grey areas around the edge, but the sort of oral versus IV, you know, we, we went away from using IV. This was about five years ago uh, because people were using it like lolly water and yet they weren't sort of thinking, well, actually, it'd be just as easy to use oral. So I think now that the IV paracetamol's gone down in price, I don't know what it is now. It's quite cheap. It might be $6 or something. You start to think, well, if we could guarantee they got the, you know, the dose that we wanted and they got it quickly, then maybe that might be a better route for some of these. You know, oh, I think the median pain score was 10 in this group. So getting it in quickly and ensuring they've got it sort of thing, I, I have some sympathy for that view, uh, even accounting for the pharmacokinetics. What do you think, JK? Yeah, I, I agree. I think five to 10 years ago, paracetamol IV was about $20 per pop. And, you know, a, a couple of tablets is only about 20 cents or even less. So it's, it's a sort of matter about one to 200 times more expensive. And not just the Alfred, even the other ADs that I used to work in, you know, they will just say, why do you give IV paracetamol? You've got uh, either, if you can't tolerate oral, just do it PR route. You can just do a, a you know, much more observable as well. And you can do, go bypass your first pass metabolism, very similar to how you can give IV as well. So, so there was a lot of argument, mainly because of the cost. But as you said, the cost has come down. And now we just start thinking. But even then, once it's come down, I still don't use it as much. Only when, when I've got, you know, some of the more complex patients, probably not as appropriate in this study group, some of the more complex patients who has got history of uh, uh, opioid addictions and complex pains um, treatments where they were trying to get off opioids and, and this would, would probably become more of a prominent choice instead. We'd have to use a conversion factor if you rely purely on the analgesic effect, which I think the half a milligram of hydromorphone should be equivalent roughly to about three and a half milligrams of IV morphine. So it's a little bit less than the five milligrams IV than we give. It's a little bit more than 2.5 milligrams IV that we would give some patients um, initially. And I think, I think there, was, there, there was a thought that I had that if these two were comparable, then is there a role for some use of IV paracetamol among those patients who I would start with dosing 2.5 milligrams of IV morphine because clearly I'm concerned about the possible adverse drug reaction? The, the problem with RCTs, you know, drug A versus drug B, is it's not how we practice. Mm. You know, we walk up to the patient and we say, are you in pain? Yep, here's something. Oh, it's not quite working. We'll give you a bit more. Oh, uh, we'll add something in. And and so what we should be comparing is, is analgesic regimens um, you know, titrating, you know, with a, you know, maybe just with morphine or morphine plus paracetamol or paracetamol alone followed by morphine, whatever, you know, whatever you decide is the right thing. But this is not, this study does not replicate how any of us would practice in an emergency department, is it? I mean, we don't just go with one drug and walk mm. away. 
Mm, that's true. And JK, do you even use a do you use an opioid ladder sort of in a stepwise process, or do you find that you sometimes start with a with multiple analgesic uh, multimodal analgesia in somebody who's in severe pain? Yeah, I think it's also highlighted in this paper, as Peter mentioned. It's not how we practice. Uh, one of the things. It's, you know, you've, you've seen this group that tried to contain within their studies. There was a huge number that they tried for a start, and then they only sort of come down to about 160 patients or so, given the huge amount of exclusion criteria involved. They're trying to study this age uh, geriatric group with chronic pain problems, which is very predominant, and most of them are on some form of chronic pain treatments or even just regular paracetamol, which were excluded as well. So, so it's a super selective group of patients that we're dealing with on this paper. And it's really hard to really have someone to come into the door uh, and just giving them as an IV opioid as a first stop medications. Uh, we often just want, we don't want to give them too much, but we don't want to give them too little. And that's the sort of titrations and sort of analgesia ladder or opioid ladder that we tend to utilize in most of the modern uh, sort of a medical practice, I believe. See, uh, in some ways, this underlines the current trend towards a more pragmatic approach to these sort of trials, which is you don't say drug A versus drug B. You say, we're going to teach everyone in the ED to do it this way. And we'll give we'll give a pathway for pain relief in in the more severe pain, pain, whatever it is. But the point being that, like, no matter what drug you use, the side effects you've got to have a rescue medication. And and so I would be more interested in in a study that looked at say opioid sparing approach, where you might start off with paracetamol and maybe an NSAID if that was appropriate maybe a non-addictive opioid and then escalate going up and then with the really severe ones obviously giving a, a decent dose of IV morphine or whatever we we might use plus or minus ketamine but but have a, a it's a program of analgesia and the only way you can do that is is not with an RCT because you can't turn people on or turn people off you do it as a probably a step wedge design so you introduce a re- regimen of analgesia as opposed to simply comparing drug A with drug B one one other point i might be uh, peter might be able to answer this a little bit better as well i find that these pain medication, analgesic comparisons using these um, endpoint as uh, pain scores is super subjective. You know, pain is a very subjective thing and and having to reduce the pain score from uh, by 4.6 versus 3.6, it's really arbitrary. It's really hard to sort of uh, have a judgment. I just wonder whether there are any other really markers of analgesic efficiency that would be better than, you know, subjective patients' reports. Uh, whether well, in the form of um, uh, length of hospital stay of similar nature. Well, pain is subjective. The issue is that most patients will get better. In, you know, like you could just leave them lying there and they'd get better. But there will be a group that don't get better, you know, people with ongoing ischemia or something, you know, that's quite serious or people with chronic pain. And so that group will still be in pain or maybe even get more pain. And so, you know, this was a very heterogeneous group, although a lot of them had abdominal pain. But, you know, abdominal pain, you know, there's renal colic, there's bowel obstruction, there's cancer, there's all sorts of stuff going on. Very different etiologies, some of which will, as I say, automatically get better and some of which will um, get worse. And and no matter what you give them, you give them 100 milligrams of morphine, it still wouldn't be better. Now, my last question is, if you could have a bundle that you would compare with another bundle? What would be the components of those two bundles? 
I'm a believer. You get one bundle. <laughs> basically, you want, I mean, opioids are dangerous, and we don't understand that as much as we should. There was a sort of movement in the late 90s, which was, I think, generated by one of the drug companies to sell Indone. But but nevertheless, I don't think pain is bad. I think pain is good. Uh, it tells you that there's something wrong. But, you know, relieving someone in distress is is important. That's one of our jobs. We don't have to get rid of it altogether, but we need to take the top off it so that it's bearable for the person. And as I say, most people get better independent of what you sort of give them. You know, if it's a limb injury, you you immobilize it and that's good. And if it's a abdominal pain or a renal colic, it sort of gets better by itself or goes to surgery. You know, so all those things happen. Paracetamol, non-steroidals are fantastic. Some of the opioids that are not addictive, such as tramadol, tapenadol, or, you know, tapenadol, we don't know much about, but less addictive, tarjan, some of those uh, have a place. And then there's Things we can do, you know, for very severe pain, like a compound fractured tibia or something, adding in ketamine makes a huge difference. I mean, we've shown that in many studies. You've got to sort of target what the problem is and what the natural history is. But there's good evidence, for example, in renal colic that non-steroidals are better than morphine. So, you know, start with what works. And so not only would you would you modify the components of that bundle, you would modify what you're targeting, what mm. type of pain you're targeting with that bundle. That makes sense. Thank you. I probably would, would also focus on on dispositions of that patients rather, because if you actually patients comes in with some sort of pains and your plan is that, oh, uh, if it's a renal colic, if it settles down, we can get them home. You would try and uh, give the patient something that they can actually go home with. You know, rather than giving them IV hydromorphone, which they probably will never get it to go home with, paracetamol, you could perhaps, you know, uh, IV and then convert into oral or non-steroidal as such. That's probably one of the things. But obviously, you do have some really sick patients with severe pain that needs to be admitted into an in-hospital setting or ICU. Then you pretty much uh, has a bit more liberal use of other uh, opioids if you need to. So, so always think about where the patient's going from there. Sorry, just one other thing we didn't mention was uh, local blocks. Um, so obviously with, you know, femur fractures and so forth, then we've done work on the um, rib fractures. You know, these are very basic things that make a huge difference to the patient and are pr- underutilized. And they all go back to the initial point that was made, which is it's useful to evaluate how we practice because we don't practice in the context of an RCT. Paper two. So the next study is dear to all our hearts but especially one of our guests. (laughs) The next study is the Holt study. The title was Hyperbaric Oxygen for Lower Limb Trauma, an International Multi-Center Randomized Clinical Trial. The uh, journal was Diving in Hyperbaric Medicine, and uh, the date was September 2022. Um, uh, The background is that... uh, Hyperbaric oxygen treatment is not often used in acute traumatic injury, but has been advocated for. There is suggestion of benefit from animal models and limited randomized trial. With reference to the Gostillo-Anderson classification, high-grade open fractures are high risk for complications like deep infection and delayed union. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy offers additional or synergistic anti-infective effects that may reduce necrosis, edema, and may accelerate the healing of bone 
nerves, and soft tissue. The study design uh, was, uh, this was an open-label, pragmatic, randomized trial with blinded outcome arbitration. The patients studied were adult trauma patients with an open tibial fracture within 48 hours from the onset of injury by the treating surgeon to be sufficiently severe to carry a high risk of major complications. Involved 12 sessions over nine days, pressurization to 2.4 or 2.8 atmospheres in the chamber with total oxygen durations between 80 and 100 minutes each. And the comparator was standard trauma care. The primary outcome was occurrence of infection and or necrosis during the period from initial surgery to the 14-day assessment date. And the primary outcome components were also assessed separately. The secondary outcomes, the identification of those acute complications that were clinically severe according to a priori guidelines. The results were the primary outcome. There was no statistically significant difference between the groups in the incidence of the composite primary outcome of one or more acute phase complications. However, in the primary outcome components, necrosis was reduced in the hyperbaric oxygen therapy group. With the secondary outcomes, um, the pre-planned multivariate adjustment for baseline injury severity factors for the statistical relationship between hyperbaric oxygen therapy allocation and the incidence of acute infection and or necrosis did strengthen, but it still remained non-significant. This was the initial primary outcome, um, uh, the adjusted uh, initial primary outcome. The other secondary outcomes were association between hyperbaric oxygen allocation and reduced necrosis, and uh, there was significance found there. There was also a secondary outcome where over 12 months, patients receiving hyperbaric oxygen therapy were less likely to suffer a defined late complication. Those were a problem wound, a deep infection, or a delayed union. And so the author's conclusions here were this multicenter randomized trial of hyperbaric oxygen therapy for severe open tibial fractures did not detect a statistically significant reduction in its pre-specified primary outcome measure of the overall number of acute complications of infection and or necrosis. An author of this publication was Professor Cameron. And the first question that I have here is, I'm reading it and I've read it again, and I see positive outcomes. I see a primary outcome that was in a pre-planned component analysis showed a statistically significant reduction in necrosis. It seems to me like you're more critical of it than (laughs) than I would be. You know, like I could spend a day talking about this study because it took up a lot of my life. This is a fascinating study at a methodological level, at a system, trauma system level, and a, you know, biological level. This study was born in the midst of a time when people thought that hyperbaric could solve all sorts of injuries. You know, the the uh, footballers all you know, went through hyperbaric every time they strained a ligament, you know, all sorts of things were going on around sort of, you know, the wonders of hyperbaric oxygen from cancer to injury to inflammation, whatever. So we tried to design a trial which would, you know, demonstrate, if there was a difference, demonstrate a difference in outcome in a high risk group. And so unfortunately, that meant that we you know, if you if you think about, you know, compound fractured tibias, unfortunately, they sort of disappeared a bit during the time of the trial. 
which meant that it took a long time to get the numbers. In addition, we wanted to get a sort of an outcome measure that was most likely to be statistically significant. And so we chose a composite outcome. The dangers of choosing a composite outcome are that you bring in a whole lot of crap to sort of inflate the numbers, but then the problem is the crap is not sort of different. Underlying the crap if you'll excuse the uh, the expression, was a very significant outcome, which was necrosis. And it's, well, by crap, I mean, you know, all these sort of minor infections and things which no one cares about and which are very subjective, you know, like you and I could come to a different agreement about what an infection was. But necrosis is necrosis. So and it was evaluated by two blinded consultant orthopedic yeah, So they surgeons. looked at pictures and things and and, and made a decision and it, and it was really pretty, you know, that was fairly robust in terms of an outcome. If we'd chosen that as our primary outcome, this would have been a very positive trial. <laughs> mm. But that's all in retrospect. So we, we had problem recruiting because of we, we wanted to get this more severe group of uh, tip fibs. And then we had trouble with our outcome measure. And so it took a long time. And then, of course, the first author had some health issues. So all these things combined to make it a problematic trial, which which took much longer than it should have. The point about it is, though, that when you actually, sort of, as you say, is when you dig beneath the surface, uh, if you can prevent necrosis in a, in a person with these, you know, severe injuries, that's a, a very important outcome, and it has implications for the trauma system because if you've got one of these really nasty tip fibs. They should go to a hyperbaric centre. They shouldn't go to a place that doesn't have hyperbaric because you want that additional treatment which is not available. So, again, you know, like it's not huge numbers, but it does have implications for the way we triage our pre-hospital patients to make sure they go to a centre with with hyperbaric. So it's it's sort of, it's a very interesting study and I think it's something that, you know, should be talked about in <laughs> research uh courses and whatever as to how you construct the outcome well both the selection process and the outcome measures but at the end of the day this is one of the few studies in hyperbaric that has actually been positive there's very very little in hyperbaric you know like there's a lot of hyperbaric chambers there's not many robust studies that show a positive outcome and this is one that brings me to my next question dr jk you're a mm. consultant at the biggest trauma center in Australasia. How difficult is it to get somebody from the emergency and trauma center, our emergency department, to the hyperbaric chamber when they need it? There's a lot of needs to um, to get in terms of the volumes of benefits, uh, if you like, uh, if we want to drive something to happen. I think anecdotally and, and based on some previous you know, expert um, experience, there has been really good results from hyperbaric treatments. If you talk to some of the orthopedic surgeons and, and general surgeons who manage these complex wounds, they, they love it. They say definitely a difference, uh, there's a difference there. But you know, I think, I think, again, based on this paper, this is a really uh, sick patients. They are like critical care research, which has comes in with its own limitations and, and access to those patients itself. So, you know, to really try and gear this forward, you really want study like this to really prove that it's got, you know, all the benefits you can get on top of the normal uh, sort of management. So with that, you know, getting the patients up to a hyperbaric, obviously there's only one in the whole of Victoria. 
kind of need to have the whole system set up to make sure that the patient is stable, that their lines are all compatible in the chambers, and and you know that they are able to last in the chamber for for the uh, durations of treatment itself. So there's a few little obstacles, but if you have enough reasons or enough benefits that you are about to reap, then really those things can be overcome. Now I've been here for a couple for for two to three years at the Alfred. And I haven't seen a trauma patient go from the emergency department to to the hyperbaric chamber. But why not offer hyperbaric oxygen therapy for contaminated open high grade fractures? Do we do that on the from the wards? It's not an emergency procedure. It doesn't have to happen within three hours of arrival or something. It can happen after they've been operated on or what you know, like and after they've been stabilized. So, like you've obviously got to do the ABCs, and then you send them to the hyperbaric as jk says logistically putting someone in the, one of these chambers is actually quite an exercise are we doing that outside of a trial though um, i think it depends a little bit on the individual surgeons with the discussion of the hyperbaric physicians at the moment you have these patients with really complex costello tree and above types of wounds where the patient is going to undergo 20 over operations to try and salvage the limb uh, with neurovascular compromise as such. So, um, and I think there are still some in the sort of, uh, um, I wouldn't say controversial, but just debatable indications, but the surgeons do try to sort of push them if they can uh, to try and save the limb by discussions, individual case discussion with the hyperbaric physicians. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. It's very cool. It's good to have some robust evidence. You know, like so much of what we do, especially in these high-end trauma patients, is just sort mm. of like, you know, JK thinks it's a good idea and mm. Camo thinks it's a waste of time, you know, like it's sort of like testing the wind. But, you know, to have this sort of evidence is is really important. Definitely agree. Paper three. The next paper we have, the last one, is titled Aggressive or Moderate Fluid Resuscitation in Acute Pancreatitis. It's a waterfall trial. The journal was the New England Journal of Medicine, September 2022. The background was we have advice for aggressive fluid management in patients with pancreatitis, which some of us have been taught from medical school. Though in practice, most clinicians temper that aggressive fluid management initially. I have a publication here from 2009 in Pancreatology titled, A Faster Rate of Initial Fluid Resuscitation in severe acute pancreatitis diminishes in hospital mortality. That's one of many publications that may suggest that a faster initial rate may have benefits. This is the justification for the waterfall trial in an evaluation between aggressive and moderate fluid management in acute pancreatitis. The study design was an open-label randomized control trial with one-to-one enrollment, including countries Spain, India, Italy, and Mexico. The patients studied were patients over 18 years of age with acute pancreatitis, as defined by the revised Atlanta criteria. The intervention was aggressive fluid resuscitation, defined as a bolus of 20 mils per kilo, followed by an infusion of 3 mils per kilo per hour. And the comparator was moderate fluid resuscitation with an infusion of 1.5 mils per kilo per hour, preceded by a bolus of 10 mils per kilo but only if the patient was hypovolemic. The outcomes were the development of moderately severe or severe acute pancreatitis during hospitalization as per the revised Atlanta classification. The outcome, 
was the study was stopped early. There was no significant between group difference in the development of moderately severe or severe acute pancreatitis. And there were safety outcomes of fluid overload with 20.5% of the patients in the aggressive arm developing fluid overload compared to 6.3% in the moderate arm reaching significance. Therefore, the trial was ceased early. The author's conclusion was early aggressive fluid resuscitation resulted in a higher incidence of fluid overload without improvement in clinical outcomes. The bottom line for, for me here was, I think, evidence for current practice, because I don't know many who would give greater than two liters bolus for acute pancreatitis, followed by one liter of crystalloid every three to four hours, which was roughly what the aggressive arm entailed. Is that different to what was previously practiced? I think your ballpark of the fluid is correct. Um, now, just going back a little bit, the amounts of um, uh, uh, patients with pancreatitis there is not quite quantified as you know, the severity judgments-wise is actually quite different. I mean, all, not all pancreatitis comes in the same. Um, we used to have different classifications from Ransom's to Glasgow's and, and all different things. They didn't actually quite quantify, you know, the types of pancreatitis the patient comes in. You could have a patient who looks completely well with some vague abdominal pain and a lipase of over 2,000, and that's a pancreatitis. Or you could have someone with crunching around in, in pain and, and shock and uh, uh, being refractory with all deranged biochemistry. And those type of pancreatitis, they don't quite quantify that bit. And all they, they think is this, they diagnose a pancreatitis and they treat with, within those two arms itself. So I think that's sort of a, a little bit challenging to understand because uh, obviously you, you don't want to just dump a fluid, which is like what you mentioned, you know, one one liters every four hours is, is six liters in 24 hours. That's a whole lot of fluids, uh, almost uh, replacing the volumes of the patient's circulating volume by a few times. So that's a lot of fluid without sort of any markers of um, of uh, end organ perfusions or urine outputs or mental states, that sort of things to to, to judge for that. So that's that's uh, I I think it's a it's a pretty aggressive um, move here for this management. I'm not sure that we would give fluid just sort of in massive amounts for no good reason. It's not how we practice. It's a bit like the analgesia study we just discussed. I mean, you you actually do it as a program. Uh, you don't sort of just whack in a few litres of fluid and hope something happens. Um, so, you know, you'd, you'd sort of look at the response and look at the map and look at the urine output and look at any other measurements you might be looking at, you know, lactate and whatever. So like it, it, it's not, it's not sort of, you know, it's not something you would um, just automatically put in a whole lot of fluid, is it? Not to be overly critical. Is this a straw man fallacy? If we're comparing moderate fluid resuscitation, which is what most of us would advocate for with a therapy that most most clinicians would not initiate. Are we comparing a therapy with something that is unlikely to be helpful and maybe harmful? I feel that if we're comparing two different therapies, is it not a better use for us to compare two therapies that are actively used frequently? Um, and so perhaps a moderate light and a moderate heavy versus a quite aggressive fluid regime. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I guess there was a tendency maybe 20 years ago to um, give people a lot of fluid and then they became all waterlogged and edematous and, they, you know, they looked terrible. But that sort of went out of fashion 20 years ago. I mean, I, I think, uh, yeah, as you're saying, I, I guess you've got to compare something that people would actually use in 2022. Yeah, I think it was focused uh, at that time was focused more on these ileus that these severe pancreatitis patient comes in. The guts completely just shuts down and the water just sits there doing nothing and not absorbing anything. And that's why they try to sort of uh, uh, make sure that every organ is well perfused before the SIRS response comes in. But like I mentioned before, you know, it's not all pancreatitis are the same and, and they, they sort of come in, in more like a, like a, a greater severity. Um, so you can't really just, um, you know, see a, an increased lipase with pain and pancreatitis and then just doing doing that. I, I think that's really challenging. But, you know. Yeah, I mean, in terms of what people are actually doing on the ground, it, it, it's not sort of, you know, it's not, rel- you know, the comparator isn't relevant. Mm-hmm. The the follow up point here is on the uh, the severity classification. So they use the revised Atlanta classification from 2012, which stratifies it in three different ways. One of them was time-based, another is edematous versus uh, necrotic in, in the type of cysts they find. I, I struggled a little bit with using that classification because it's not what I use regularly. I usually use Ransons or a modified Glasgow. Do either of you use the modified Atlanta or is it primarily the radiologist in their grading? Yeah, I, I don't, I, I, to be all honest, I don't use that as much anymore. I probably more use things like Apache and, you know, just general appearance of patients and symptomatic um, and end organ perfusions. And, you know, I don't really look into how much urea or, or hematocrit is going to affect my management even in general. Because um, in honesty, the pancreatitis that we see in, in day-to-day practice, probably only a small proportion actually comes in with a severe form. Most of them, it's a bit like, you know, anaphylaxis, uh, they just they they do settle down pretty quickly. And to be honest, I don't I can't remember the last severe pancreatitis that I saw. It's you know it may be six months ago or something. You know it's it's there used to be more of it around, and I don't know why, but that sort of hemorrhagic pancreatitis with you know where they sort of almost dissolve their pancreases before your eyes, it's yeah. not that common. And I don't know why that is. Maybe because we're managing patients, you know, there's less gallstone problems, there's less uh, viral pancreatitis. Uh, I don't know. Alcoholic pancreatitis is sort of, you know, generally, you know, chronic. You know, you sort of get a little bit of a blip and they lose a little bit of their pancreas, but it's not that sort of overwhelming pancreatitis that means they've got to go to ICU or, or that sort of thing. Yeah, if you go back like, 20 years ago, it was my sort of anecdotal evidence. I haven't looked at this, but it, there seemed to be more of those really severe pancreatitis. I don't know. What do you think, JK? Yeah, I agree. I, I have to say, like when I first started, I seen a, a lot more than how it is now. Uh, what we see more often nowadays really are those alcohol binge drinkers who comes in with some transient rise in, in lipase up to about five, six hundreds. And then, and then you do a second level, it just comes down again. And and I really won't be dumping fluid on these patients. That concludes my questions. Thanks a lot, Danny. That, that's a nice session. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks a lot. That's all good. Pleasure. I was your host, Danny Marhaba, with Professor Peter Cameron and Dr. J.K. from the Alfred. Good night, guys. Thanks.